Hi, everybody. My name is Kathy, and I am recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. This is a little crazy for me, because I've never done this. But before I even begin, I would really love to thank Beverly, whose idea this was last year. She said, why don't you do a 12-step workshop? And I said, what? What are you talking about? I've never even been to a 12-step workshop. This is my first one. Really, I've never been to anything. I thought, what a pretentious idea. I mean, really, it's a 12-step workshop. What am I supposed to do? And she said, no, really, think about it, think about it. And I knew when she asked me, I was going to end up doing it. I just knew it. And I knew I didn't want to do it. But I talked myself into it. And about three or four weeks ago, I thought, how did I ever get into this? But I thought when she asked me, well, I'll just spend the whole summer working on it. I'll just spend the whole summer working on it. And actually, most everything that I have to share just happened in the last three weeks. So thank God I didn't really work on it in the summer. I just kept thinking, Christmas, Christmas would be a good time. Hey, Martin Luther King weekend, four days, that'll be a good time. So I just kept pushing it off and pushing it off. But I do want to begin by saying, really, I have never been to a 12-step workshop. And I said to Beverly, really, I think I only have about 15 minutes worth of talk. And so maybe we could just at 11 o'clock give everybody their money back. We can all go to the Galleria and really have some French fellowship, you know. I know why Debbie and Ellen really came down to Dallas. Neiman Marcus. I mean, let's be honest here. So at any rate. Actually, what it allowed me to do one more time was to look at my life, where I've been, where I am now, and one more time just be in absolute awe of a loving and compassionate God who has done for me day by day, month by month, and year by year what I could never, ever do on my own. And for that, I am so grateful. And so I really owe a debt of gratitude for Beverly, even though I really at times cursed her over the last year. <laughs> I, um, I really owe her a debt of gratitude for this opportunity to share with you what these steps have meant in my life. The other nice thing that I was thinking last week when I was really getting crazy and realized I had so few, really so few stories to tell, um, I thought, well, you know, the nice thing about doing this is the very first time you do it, you do it in Dallas where you know so I mean, there are so many people here that I have met before, and, and I know it'll be fine with them if the whole thing's a bust. I mean, they're just such a, really, I have found that, that um, Al-Anon in Dallas, Texas, is so generous and loving and accepting. And, I, and, I, and I'm not just saying that because I'm here. When uh, Debbie and uh, Ellen and I were talking about this, I, I, I said to them, where do you meet these women in Texas? Where do you meet these women in Texas? And I don't say that about women everywhere, but I, women and men, I should say, but I really believe that you have a very special thing, and so it's, it's really nice for me to do this um, here. Um, I do want to take a little bit of time. I know some of you know this, the, the story, but I, I really do need to set this up a little bit for myself, I suppose, and I'll do it as briefly as I can. Um, <clears throat> Why are you laughing? I said, Beverly, I really don't think I can talk that long. And, she, and I said, I really think maybe I'll be done in an hour. And she said, Kathy, you and I both know you'll go longer than an hour. <laughs> <clears throat> I 
Well, I say I wrote this word. I don't know what that means. Why did I write that word down? I don't know what it means. I came out of a family in Cincinnati that's a pretty big family, my own, and they've been in Cincinnati for years and years and years. And I married a man whose family is from Cincinnati, an enormous family that's been in Cincinnati for years and years and years. And one thing that's important to my story, I believe, is I live in a city that is connected. I mean, it is just we are all so connected. My kids go to school with kids who are their second and third cousins, and it takes them a while to figure it out. I mean, it's almost an incestuous city, Cincinnati is. You know, in that people, there are so many, the fabric of my life is woven, is just woven and intermingled with so many people. There's just such a network of family and friends in the city where I live. And I loved my years growing up. I guess one of the things that made me stop and think about this is one time, I teach in a high school, and we brought somebody in once who was a school psychologist or something, and they had, you know, an alphabet behind their name. And she was working on this board, and she was talking about dysfunctional families and how it all works and, you know, all the, she had arrows and lines and everything. And this man behind me, who's head of the guidance counseling department, said, well, what if somebody from a healthy family marries into a dysfunctional family? And she, I'll never forget, she had that chalk in her hand, and she turned around to look at him, and she said, that would never happen. You know what I thought? Now, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you saying about my family? So I went home and I called my sponsor, and my sponsor said to me, I love this, there are degrees of dysfunction. <laughs> and then I called my brother, one of my brothers. Do you think we had a goofy family life? And he said, what? I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. And then I'd call my sister who was out of town, and I'd say, do you think we had like a crazy family life? And she said, what? I mean, you know, and I went through this whole thing, and finally everybody told me to quit calling them, and I was annoying to them. This is all that I know. I grew up in a family that was very, very different in some respects, and very, very much the same in other respects. We are Irish Catholic and have been for a million years, and with that comes special things. We rely a tremendous amount on humor, and that's a big part of my story, because I spent years trying to live with outrageous behavior, and the only way I could do it was to make it funny. The only way I could live with it was to take it and turn it into like a nightclub act. My husband provided me with my best material. And I think somewhere online, I was afraid he really would get better, and then I'd have no stories. But that's, that's what I knew to do, because that's how I grew up. I grew up with really funny people. And it's that, you know, it's that dry wit of my father's and my mother's. And my grandmother, oh, she was a very funny woman, but she had a very sharp tongue. Um, and, it could, and it can be a cruel humor sometimes, and it can be a very irreverent humor. But that's how I grew up. So anything that occurred when we were kids, and really almost nothing did. We had no great tragedies in our life, but any small crisis was always dealt with in a humorous way. And, and my family still does this. My brothers and sisters have known really a heartache in their lives. And it has made them funnier. 
I mean, sometimes the worse things get. I watch this among my, my siblings. The funnier they become. It's just something that we've all, we all grew up with. Um, that laughter, that wit. I can remember one time, one of the many places that I went was the social worker, and she was not at all interested in listening to my stories about my husband or about his family. She wanted to talk about me and my family, which I thought was terribly rude of her. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, in my family all we pretty much did was laugh. And she said, well, that's pretty sick. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe it was, but it worked for us. I mean, maybe it was, but it worked for us. When my father's only brother, only brother, Murray, died at 48 of a heart attack, we were all in this funeral home, and there my father was standing next to his only brother in the casket. And my uncle at the time had been or was the president of the Hibernians, which is this big Irish organization. They wear these hats and have parades and every St. Patrick's Day they they steal a statue of St. Patrick's and hide it and then they bring it out. It's just crazy. Something the Irish would think was funny. And then they bring the statue out, you know, and then it leads the parade. So all the Hibernians are there for this for the wake. And they're saying the rosary and they're singing Irish songs. And I turned to my father who's standing there by this casket, open casket, and I said to Dad, she dad this is really great of the Hibernians to do this for Murray. And he turned to me and he said, this is nothing. At dawn, they're going to execute a Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the kind of family I grew up in. It was just kind of crazy. I mean, everything was made funny. Um, I, um, now, and we did have we did have drinkers, um, not in my immediate family. Although my father did drink, he was a newspaper man, and then later a newscaster. And he would come home from work at all different hours, and oftentimes he would sit down in the living room with a shot of whiskey, and he would read constantly. He was just a big reader, and he would drink this whiskey. I never saw it change his behavior. It never affected us. Never affected any part of his life. I have no idea what my father's relationship was with alcohol. All I know, it never caused a problem in my life or in the lives of any of my brothers and sisters. I had said to my mother once, she came from a drinking, her father was a big drinker, and I said to her once after I got into Al-Anon, Mom, do you think that maybe Grandpa was an alcoholic? And she really turned to me in horror and said, we never had enough money to be alcoholics. He was just a mean Irish drunk. And, and that's what they looked. I mean, that was the label. You were a mean Irish drunk. And you suffered through that. I mean, that's all part of how I was raised, you know, that noble suffering. You suffered through things. And that was almost a mark of character. Not only to suffer through it, but to suffer through it silently. Whew! That was a golden ring. To suffer through it silently. I mean, really, 16 years of a Catholic education, I had a steady diet of young men and young women who were held up as models to me who actively sought out martyrdom. I always thought that was a little strange, but that's what I got. And I don't mean to knock my faith because I learned wonderful things. I learned really good stuff. But I just never knew how to apply any of it. I never knew how to apply any of it. 
My mother taught us the importance, and she still does, of always being gracious. That if things don't, she first of all, she believes that everything will turn out all right. And the second thing is, if it doesn't, you pretend like it has. <laughs> and that's the truth. And that's how, you know, and that's what we, that's what we were taught to believe. I think because of my father's background, um, of, of being a newscaster and being a news reporter, we grew up in a house where there was always a lot of drama. My father would come in and somebody had just chopped up his wife and put her in a box and shipped her to Cleveland. And my father would present this person as not being an evil person, but wow, what a personality. <laughs> oh, and you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. One of the greatest gifts my father ever gave me, uh, besides his love of literature and, and, and his absolute appreciation of good wit, it was this idea of non-judgment. I, I never remember in my life my father ever making a judgment about anybody, no matter how bizarre they were. It was simply, whoa, what a personality, or wait till I tell you this story, or wait till, wait till I tell you about this man that I interviewed today, you know? It was always a, an appreciation for different personality types. And so I guess that's why I personally Whenever I'm in a situation where I'm listening to somebody share, and it's, and to me it's beginning to sound like a lecture, I don't know if you've ever had that situation. One time I was at a convention, and we were closing with the Lord's Prayer, and this woman who had been running the whole thing, she said, okay, now let's all join hands, and let's say the Lord's Prayer, and let's say it like you really mean it. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> whoa, where am I? I mean, I have a, you know, well, I'll get into that later, judgment. It's just not, um, it's just not something that I was really raised with. Um, and that's a gift my father passed on to me and most of my brothers and sisters. A deep appreciation for the bizarre. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, um, the other thing, you know, a lot of similar things growing up when I did in the 50s. You know, anger, get it. Throw a temper tantrum? I don't think so. I mean, you were angry, you sure didn't, you know, you, it was just kept in check. You were allowed to get mad for about 15 seconds, and then that was the end of that. Self-pity, uh-uh, uh-uh, wasn't allowed. And it wasn't just allowed in my house. Nobody I knew threw temper tantrums. Nobody I knew, we were not permitted to act that way. We were not permitted to act that way. I was on the phone with a girl, with a woman that I sponsored not so long ago, and one of my kids picked up the line and said, when do you think you'll be off? And I said to her, can you imagine saying that to your mother when you were a kid? If I had ever said to my mother, when do you think you'll be off? My head would have been rolling down the street in no time. I mean, in no time. Um, <clears throat> so that's pretty much what I really, my brothers and sisters and I today, we are really, we are really close. Once a year we try to go to New York City together. Just us. No spouses, no not Just the six of us. We go to New York City in December for a weekend, and we have the most wonderful time. Not all of us live in Cincinnati. One's over now in Bulgaria. One's in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. One's in Pennsylvania. And there are three of us, as of just recently, who are now in Cincinnati. We were really close. I don't know about all this dysfunction and stuff. You know, it's a degree, I suppose. I loved where I came from. I loved my parents. My dad's gone, my mom's still there. Sure that we do goofy things. We are not a hugging family. 
We don't, we don't hug and kiss and love. My own children do. And still when they say, when my 18-year-old said to me yesterday as I was leaving, my mom, I love you, it just, it kind of throws me. Because I'm not used to that. We, we didn't say that as kids. We didn't express ourselves that way. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with us, you know? And the other thing, none of my brothers and sisters married drinkers. They married just these regular kinds of people. Um, I fell in love with a wonderful, wonderful man when I was 20 years old. And I knew after my first date I was going to marry him. I just knew he would be a man I could live with for the rest of my life. And the disease is progressive in both of us. The disease is progressive and was progressive in both of us. But when I looked at him when I was 20, and he was 24 years old, he was one of the most wonderful, exciting men I had ever met in my life. Um, <clears throat> I have a friend in California who um, we just lost to California. Actually, she lived in Cincinnati all of her life. I've known her since I've been 14 years old. She sometimes says to me, when I go on and on about my family. She said, you know, my husband, and he's not, a, he's, he's not an alcoholic or anything, she said, when my husband dies, I'm going to write his biography, and I'm going to call it Denial, Making It Work For You. <laughs> I don't know. I think I got a whole, a whole lot of good stuff, you know, uh, growing up, um, both, from, both from my family and from my faith. But as I said to you before, and I've used this analogy before, I always felt like I, I was filled with these gifts for living, filled with really good lessons. I had this little nun in, in, in high school that used to always say, the secret, the secret to joy is joy. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. And I'll never forget her saying that. But I, it almost killed me trying to apply it in an alcoholic situation. It almost killed me trying to apply that into an alcoholic situation. I didn't know how to do it. I thought it meant that I had to suffer, that I had to suffer nobly and that I had to suffer silently. And that was the payback for this wonderful childhood, that I had 21 years of love and security and a lot of fun. And who should ask for more? Who should ask for more? It had to be balanced out by a lot of years of suffering and misery. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I used to feel like I had been all geared up to live in the mountains, you know, and that I had been given a face mask and headgear and gloves and boots and parka and long underwear, and then I had been thrown in the desert. And that's how I used to feel, like nothing that I had learned in, my, in the beginning of my life prepared me for what I was living with. And I had to work through a lot of stuff towards my faith and towards my family because of that. I can remember there were years when I'd sit alone in the kitchen weeping, and saying, if only my parents had fought more, maybe, you know, maybe I'd know how to fight. What a goofy place where I grew up. Everybody laughed and made jokes all the time. What kind of preparation for life is that? I'd go to meetings and, and there would be this woman next to me who would say, I grew up in an alcoholic family. And I'd think, well, at least you had training. <laughs> Anyway, so that's, you know, I don't know if we were doing that in the 50s and 60s, but I, never, I don't think I ever really learned. Somebody probably taught me, but I, I never really learned how to take care of myself. I listen a lot to people today and women today and men today, too, and they talk about boundaries. 
I've never heard the word boundary. And what the hell's a boundary? What does that mean? I have my boundaries. I said that one time to this guy. I have my boundaries. And he said, what are they? And I said, I don't know, but I have them. <laughs> oh, jeez, little Pete's. Anyway, um, I also have this idea. You know, my, I've, I've mentioned my... Uh, <laughs> My own brothers and sisters have all have all really faced their own their own life crisis crises, um, except for one sister who seems to have had it pretty good. And she calls me and will say, "What can I do? What can I do? Let me do this. Let me do that." And I say, "Nancy, why you don't have to do anything more? You you do so much." She said, "Oh yes, I do. Nothing bad's happened to me yet. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get paid back for this good life I had. And you know, there is that little thing, you know, where where you always think." I never want to draw too much attention to the good life I'm having because I'm afraid then God will notice and say, hmm, she's having a little bit too much fun here. Shh. I mean, that's just such an old thing I've got to guard against. I don't know where it comes from. And you'd think after years in this program of trust and love, it would be wiped clear, but it, it still hangs on there. It just hangs on there, that little, that little thing. So anyway, um, I don't think I need to tell you, alcoholism shook my foundations. I have never in my life run into such a frightening thing as alcoholism. It terrified me. It absolutely terrified me. And I believe today, as honestly as I can look at my background, that I came out of a place that was love, that was loving and secure. And it changed for me so very quickly. It just, it terrified me. I thought I, uh, I kept thinking, I'm going to wake up. Now I'm going to wake up, and this will all have been a dream. I'm going to wake up, and I'll be back home, and everybody's going to be screwing around and laughing and joking. And that never happened. And that never happened. My grandmother used to tell a story of, uh, a true story, when I was having uh, some kids, and I would nurse, and then I would try to take them, you know, from the nursing to a bottle or nursing to a cup. And she said to me once, and this was a woman that arrived in this country when she was 18 years old. The day President McKinley was assassinated, she was on the dock. And she and all the others were like, who is McKinley? I mean, she always would tell that story. She lived to 107, bright as she can be. Oh, I come from really mean, tough Irish women. Oh, God. Oh, my God. They're frightening. So she used to say to me once when I was trying to wean this baby, she'd say, well, you know what we used to do? Oh, no, that's a crazy accent. That's whatever. How did she talk? Well, you know, what you used to do, what we used to do in Ireland when you wanted to wean the baby is you'd take your finger and put it in the soot of the fireplace and draw a frightening picture on the end of your breast and it would scare the kid so he'd never want to nurse anymore. <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, God, no wonder the Irish drink. There it is. There's that answer. <clears throat> the other thing about my, I, the last thing, I guess, is we're scrubbers. We're scrubbers in my house. We scrub. I mean, if something's, by God, if something's broken, we'll just scrub it to death till we fix it, you know? I have this poster in my kitchen that's frightening to some people, but it's just an old picture that I got at the uh, Smithsonian Institute. You may have seen it. It's a woman, and she's got her head wrapped up in a bandana and she's got her arm like this and it says, we can do it. And I, I have it in my kitchen and sometimes when men will come in my kitchen, they look at that and they go, ugh. <laughs> I gotta go. 
But that's the, that's the, that's the philosophy in which I was raised, you know? It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And we'll just, you know, roll up our sleeves and we'll fix this thing. You know, we'll just scrub this thing. And we'll, and we'll make it work, by God. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll pretend like it worked anyway. And, oh, God, how exhausting that was for me. How exhausting that was for me. So, anyway, that's pretty much, you know, the basic background on me. I met my, oh, my darling husband. His sister fixed me up. And I said to her years later when she was doing nothing about, except complaining about him, I said, well, you fixed me up with him. And she said, well, I was sick then. <laughs> A likely excuse. So uh, when I met him, uh, he was in the Marines. I was in my last year of college, and he was in the Marines. And I had never gone out with anybody. I'd never gone out with a Marine. Um, but I remember when he came to pick me up, and he was just so, he was so handsome, and he had this little silver monogrammed cup filled with whiskey. I thought that was a little odd. But, um, <laughs> well, but you know, I was used to dating college guys who were like, oh, this looks pot. I mean, you know, when I was in college, people drank. The legal age in Cincinnati at the time was 18, so and it wasn't even really such a big deal. It wasn't like it is, I think, today when I hear my high school students talk about, you know, it was never the central thing. It was just kind of there. But So I thought, well, Marine, you know, whiskey, I don't know. But I, oh, silver cup, I thought that was kind of neat in a way. It was kind of sophisticated. It was kind of Marine-ish. And, um, and I really, you know, I immediately liked him. He was, he kind of was one of those guys that, you know, he didn't walk. He he strutted. He was a Marine. And, you know, I'm the kind of person, believe it or not, I really don't like to draw attention to myself. I really am very happy not to have any... I, I just like to kind of be to the side. And and here he was, you know, just so cocky and full of self-confidence. And I like that. I like those kind of people because it's the opposite of me. And I like people that say what they say what they mean because, see, I don't say what I mean. You know, when I was a kid, I learned early on, just say what everybody wants to hear. It's so much easier, you know. Say what makes them happy. They have the ugliest dress on them, and you think, my God, you know, did you knock them? Where did that thing? But you don't say that. You say, oh, what a great-looking dress. And I mean, what a people pleaser. What a people pleaser that I was. And, I, and, and so when I finally met somebody that just said what was on their mind, you know, devil-may-care attitude, um, I have a friend that calls that personality type Reckless Dauntless. Well, when I met Mr. Reckless Dauntless, I loved it, you know, because I was sure that he could do for me what I, what I could never do for myself. And that's the truth. I was sure that he could do for me what I could never do for myself. And he was just the kind of person that I have always had in my life. Um, people who are willing to do those things that I, I don't want to do that I don't want to do, that I'm unwilling to do, to confront, to take care of the, you know, the, 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 the loose ends, to be the organizers. I hate all that stuff. I like to tell funny stories. <laughs> That's what I like to do. And so I, you know, I thought we would be a good match. Plus, I have to say, he lived at the time, <clears throat> for years his family had this compound way out in the country. And when you would drive up to his house, you would just drive a driveway. It was about a mile and a half long. And, uh, and at the end of it was this enormous uh, fieldstone home, which was his parents. But all the way up were these quarter horses, because his father raised quarter horses. 
And it was, and it overlooked the Ohio River and the hills of Kentucky, and it had this beautiful pool built in the 30s, you know, ornate steps going down to it, and a tennis court and stables. It was really impressive. And I don't think at the time, if you had said to me, well, how impressed are you with that? I would have said, well, not at all. But the fact of the matter is, I was. I was impressed with that. Hell, I thought I was married to the Kennedys. <laughs> and I did. Oh, anyway, uh, so, so there we are. And I think the thing that really clinched it for me with him is the fact that, um, is the fact that, uh, I gotta cover 15 years in five minutes, is the fact that we went to Batesville, Indiana one time. He had friends that lived in Batesville who also raised horses. And um, we were all gonna ride. So um, we went, other couples from Cincinnati went, a couple of couples from Indianapolis went. We were just dating at the time. We go over to Batesville, Indiana, and these people also had a big horse operation. They're all, oh, you know, saddling their horses and deciding where they're going to go and where they're going to ride. And, and this one guy, you know, a city guy from Indianapolis, he's trying, of course, to, to, to saddle the most dangerous horse in the whole stable. And the horse is just thrashing back and forth. And, you know, just slamming everybody up along the stall. So they call for Rick. Get Rick, get Rick, get Rick. And that Rick struts in there as he was wont to do. And he, he got that horse. He wrapped his arms around that horse's neck and lifted himself up and took that horse's ear and bit it. <laughs> well, that paralyzes a horse. I mean, it just, they stop. I imagine somebody bit me in the air like that. I, I would, you could throw a saddle on my back too. But I'll tell you, when I saw that, whew, I thought, that's the guy. There he is. I mean, I'm afraid of a mouse. There's the one. And, and that's the truth. And that's really the truth. And so, um, we, we got married. Um, and it was, of course, not in a normal thing. Uh, I was teaching school. I was out of college. I was at school in Chicago. He had been in uh, Be oh, Beeville, Texas. I came down. I spent an Easter weekend in Beeville, Texas. I thought Beeville, Texas was the most romantic place I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> anyway, so I'm in Beeville, Texas, and he was so sweet. We went to Corpus Christi on Easter Sunday. And it was just so lovely. And then uh, he went to North Carolina, and I went to Chicago to teach. We never lived in the same city together, ever. When I dated him, he was in Meridian, Mississippi, and I was. We never lived in the same city together. And all the troubles that I saw, and this is so typical of me, all the troubles that I saw, I, I thought, well, it's just because we don't live in the same city. Ooh, this is just because you know we've never actually spent a long time together. So, of course, when we get married, it'll work. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I have this thing, you know, that I don't like. If I don't want to see it, I don't see it. If I don't want to see it, I don't see it. If I don't know what to do about it, I pretend like it isn't there. That's, that is a character defect of mine that leads to a lot of trouble then and today. And I am waiting patiently for God to remove that. <laughs> Sometimes God does, some days. Some days it's just, it's just still there, and I'm learning from that character defect. So, um, I, so at any rate, so we, 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 we decided to get married, like, next month. 
because he had to go to Vietnam. And um, I quit my job in Chicago. My mother and father were absolutely horrified, but they never said that. See, that's my parents. They never said they were horrified. They acted as if for all those years they kept their mouths closed. That's the kind of family I have, as did all my brothers and sisters, who, of course, I find out later were, ab later were absolutely terrified as I was. But they will, that's, you know, my family would never, you know, they kept it quiet. And my father prayed every day on his, on his way to work for me and for my marriage. And so we got married, got ma decided in December, got married in January, moved to North Carolina where he was stationed at, at Cherry Point Marine Corps Air Station. And I will just tell you very quickly, I knew I was in trouble in 10 days. In 10 days, I knew I was out of my league. In 10 days, I knew I was in way over my head. In 10 days, things were happening that I had absolutely no idea how to deal with. I tried to be funny. It wasn't funny. I tried to be lighthearted. It didn't work. And that's what I did for years, you see. I always tried something else, something else. I'll try this. I'll try that. I'll, nothing ever, ever worked. I was just terrified, and I could not wait for him to leave for Vietnam. I couldn't wait for those orders to come through. And they came through within three or four months. And I, I just couldn't, I didn't think I could wait that long. Because I thought that once he left, I'd be able to think this thing out. Once he left, I'd be able to scrub this up and work hard and clean it, and I'd be able to figure it out, and I'd go talk to some people, and I'd be able to fix it. And I, and I never could. I never could. I, he would come in sometimes after he would be finished flying, and I'd be watching a program, and he'd turn the station. I've never seen anybody do that when somebody else is watching a show. And I'd say, I was watching that. And he would say, now you're not. You know, I have absolutely no response for that. And what I began to do was to adjust to that. Over that one day at a time, one month at a time. Adjust, and I thought I was adjusting to marriage. And what I was really adjusting to was alcoholism. And there is no healthy way to do that. There is no healthy way for me to do that. And so without going into a whole lot of detail, he left, finally he went to Vietnam, and I, was, uh, and I was delighted that he left. But one more time, I had to pretend. I had to pretend like I wasn't delighted. I had to pretend like I was distraught. I had to pretend like I was upset, because that's what all the other wives were doing, and I thought that was appropriate behavior. God knows I wanted to be appropriate. So I was, oh, what are we going to do? I, I was delighted. I just wanted him gone. And did I worry about him in Vietnam? Not for a minute. Not for a minute. I knew he would be fine because he was so mean. <laughs> and that's just what I figured. He's just so mean. It would be nice if he'd be shot down and tortured and, and, you know, and maybe come to some sort of a spiritual experience, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. It just, and that's crazy. And you know what that did to me, knowing that I was a bride, for God's sakes? A bride, and that's my thinking already. I'm hoping that the North Vietnamese will teach him a lesson. That's crazy. And I didn't understand that about myself. Because I always thought that I was a loving and compassionate person. And these are the thoughts I'm having. And what's wrong with me that I could possibly be having these kinds of thoughts? And so I went back to Cincinnati, and he went off to Vietnam, and I called the priest that had married us. And as I was walking out the door of my house, my mother opened the door, God love her, and she said to me, I hope you're not going to tell him anything personal. <laughs> no, Mom. And I went to that priest and I said, I don't know what's wrong, but something is very, very wrong. I'm terrified. I'm just terrified. Now, I never connected my terror with my husband's drinking, although I knew that when he drank, I got scared because 
He drank, when he drank, he would get mean. He wouldn't get funny like some of the other Marines. He would just get mean. And so I learned to, to, to act accordingly. When he drank, I became, I, I, if I could become invisible, I would try to become invisible. I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I didn't want to do the wrong thing. I just treaded on, you know, I just treaded lightly when he drank. I laid low is what I did. If we were at a party, I would watch him. I would watch him, not so much because I was concerned about how much he was drinking for him. I was concerned about how much he was drinking for me. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose track of how I should act. And that's what I used to do. And then it got to the point, actually, for me, that it didn't even, it, it wasn't even really about the drinking anymore. It was just about behavior in general. It was just about waiting to see how he was so I knew how I could be. If he was in a good mood, I got in a good mood because I wanted to take advantage of that. If he was in a bad mood, I stayed out of his way because I didn't want to, I didn't want to cause a blow up. I don't like confrontation. I don't like fighting. Never have. Still don't. I just don't want to, I don't like them. I don't like that. I like harmony. I like peace. And Eleanor has taught me how no matter what's going on around me, I can live in harmony and I can live in peace. That it comes from the inside. It has not, not a lot to do with what's going on on the outside. See, my husband's alcoholism for me before I found you was like quicksand. I just, there I just step right in it. <laughs> you know? Didn't know. Didn't know. Didn't know how to avoid it. Didn't know how to stay away from it. It just got me. It just got me, and I got crazier and crazier. We talk about our thinking become confused and our perceptions distorted. No phrase, I think, in our literature makes more sense to me than that. My thinking was so crazy and my perceptions so distorted that I, I didn't know what I was living with, but I had a feeling that I had a starring role in a B movie, and that's what I used to think. That's what I used to think. Not even a very good movie. So, um, so Vietnam, he comes back from Vietnam, nothing really has changed, I haven't figured anything out except that I know that I'm scared. I lay on the couch in my parents' home, and, I, and this is how nuts I am at this point, and I think, please God, please let me just wake up, and it's 1965, please God, let me just wake up and it would be 1965. And I knew that would never happen, but that's how desperate I was. That's how, and I'd been married for four months. I've been married for four months. Now, I don't need to tell you, in my family, there nobody's divorced. I don't know why that is. There's just no divorce. Uh, and my friends, and a lot of my friends date back from when I was in grade school. There is just a handful. To this day, a handful. Most of the people that I know are still married to guys that we knew in high school and college. That's just the way, since it's kind of a strange thing, I suppose, although it seemed normal to me. So the thought of getting out of there was never really a serious thought for me. You know what was the, the, what the thought was? You got yourself into this, smarty. Now you're going to have to live with it. You thought, and then I turned against myself. You thought you were so cool, you know, and that you could do this, and that you could fix this, and you thought you were so grand, you know, and you got your head turned by this fancy estate overlooking the hills of Kentucky, and now, you know, and now, Joan Kennedy, you found out. <laughs> I'm not saying I was only 22. That's really sometimes when I think about how goofy. I mean, I was just this little kid. But so was he. 
So we see, we just, okay. So at any rate, so there we are, and uh, he comes back from Vietnam, decides he wanted to be a dentist, I don't know. And um, right before he went to dental school, he was badly beaten up in a bar by a bouncer because he dumped his uh, champagne on the floor and they didn't like it. He had eye surgery. We go to Ohio State Dental School where um, he, he stopped. When he got beaten up, that kept him off the alcohol for the next three years. And, and things began to work. Oh, oh my God, we had this wonderful time in Columbus, Ohio. I mean, he was in school. The GI Bill was paying for it. He had savings that paid for it. It was like being in college for him. I went back to graduate school at Ohio State. We had some kids. It was wonderful. And I thought, oh, thank God. I Thank God I hung in here. Isn't this wonderful? I almost missed the payoff. Came back to Cincinnati for him to practice dentistry, and things turned back into this nightmare situation. It was awful. It was terrible. All this crazy behavior starting again, and, and bursts of anger, and, and I don't know when they're coming, and I, and I had forgotten, you know, I felt like that I had let my, my tools, you know, become dull, because I used to be really good at knowing when blow-ups would occur, and now I didn't know when he was going to blow up, and it was odd. it was just strange, and and what turned out was, of course, that now that he was a dentist, he he was writing himself prescriptions for drugs. And God love him, you know, he wasn't at all shy about it. He would write a prescription to Rick Heakin and then sign it, Rick Heakin. Well, it doesn't take long. I mean, really, what a dumb drug addict. It doesn't take long. <laughs> or honest, honest, you know, for the renew agents. I mean, they, you know, they go through pharmaceutical. I mean, they go through pharmacy records. And it's like, geez, look at this guy. Who in the world would be eating this much Percodan and, and, and codeine and blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't long before they caught him and uh, arrested him, and he was thrown out of dentistry. Uh, not for long, I mean, but, but for him it was forever. He never went back into it. And um, what happened to me was, um, again, i got to go back to this Irish thing. There's something about growing up the way that I did. It doesn't really matter how much money you have. You're going to lose it tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't matter because you grow up in the shadow of the potato famine, I think. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, you may have a million dollars a day, but next week, psh- it's probably going to be gone. And um, my whole family has this. You know, you, you, my, one of my brothers bought a new house, and the next day he called, and I said, how's the new house? And he said, I'm so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Unemployment scares me to death. It, it just frightens me to no end, because now we got a bunch of kids, and i got a husband who's, you know, who can't work, and then who wouldn't work and who laid in bed with guns and um, shot things out the window. And, uh, and we're living out in, of course, we're living with this family. Where else would we live? On this family, which what I considered once to be, you know, huh, nirvana. And it's now, I feel like I'm living in the house of Usher. I mean, it's awful. This, so what happened was this. He began to, uh, I, say, I, say, I say steal leg hole traps because actually he used to trap fox and skin them and sell their furs. Now, I'm going to tell you, you try to make that sound like it's a good business in the 1980s, like I did. I was pretty good, man. You would have thought he was a furrier, the way I described him. <laughs> really, you would have thought we had a shop down on Vine Street, the way I told the story. Shooting these things. And, and really, my kids would bring their little friends home from school, and the school, Kevin McNerney, would never come to our house. As a matter of fact, when you would mention our house, it would, it would just terrorize them. Because there were all these carcasses of... of Skin fox. Oh, they're awful looking things without their skins. Just all, all up and down our breezeway and the neighbors. You know, now we're getting subdivision as a lot of these places. You know, we used to live out in the country, but over the years they became subdivisions around us. 
you know, around this big family's compound. And, and these normal people are moving in and they can't understand why anybody would have to steal a leg hole trap out there at back door and so they won't let their kids play at my house. Excuse me? You won't let your child play at my home? Oh, me? When I was a kid, I was like the babysitter of the world. What? So I turned it against them, you know. I made them sound like they were the bizarre ones, you know. I used to call them the Stepford Wives. I used to make fun of them for being city people trying to move into the country and not knowing how to make the adjustment. Anyway, make long to, to, to cut this short, um, I just, when I was uh, pregnant with my seventh child, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I tried a lot of things to make things work. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm pregnant with my seventh child and uh, oh my God, and, and now he's working, he's doing this little job, he's got this job to work construction, he's digging holes and it's, and it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking to me. And I don't know what's going to happen. And one of the sisters on the driveway joined AA. And um, then this sister joined AA. Then this sister joined AA. Then this sister joined AA. So we got these sisters joining AA. And then we got the husbands joining Al-Anon. And then, um, because I, I'm living in this house, you know, of course it's not ours, um, but I'm living in this house next to the main house, and I'm living in the little house that overlooks the pool. They're always up in my house. And they all have had, at different times in their life, lived in this house where I'm living. It's kind of like the house where you stay until you can make enough money to build your own. Except we had no money, so it looked like we might be permanent residents there. <laughs> so they're coming up, you know. And, and I like to say this because it's really true. Nobody will ever tell you they're coming for you. But when they get in, they're coming for you. <laughs> They won't come directly out and drag you, but they'll come, they're coming for you. They're so hard to stay out of the program if you're surrounded by people who are in it, you know. They come up, you know, with their little big books, which I used to call the blue book just to burn them. I mean, look how petty I, oh, you got the blue book. It's the big book. Oh, well, what does the blue book say? It's the big book. You know, and they talk all that, you know, the language, you know, and the phrases and the slogans and all the memorized paragraphs out of the blue book. It used to drive me crazy. Uh, and I was, and, and really, just for spite, I thought, no matter what happens, I'm never joining their group. Just to burn them. I mean, just to burn them. I'll never join their group. But of course I did. Because, <laughs> because eventually you watch. And eventually it struck me that they really were getting happy. I mean, they're alive for changing. They were really, they'd bring all their big AA buddies down to the pool. Oh, I hate that. And now I'll be laughing and joking and let go, let go. And I think, oh, God. <laughs> oh, I'm living in an ashram now. Oh. <laughs> what is this? I couldn't even go down to the pool and there they all were. And, oh, that thing just drive me crazy. Because I was in this prayer group and I just wanted to be left alone. That was the fact of the matter. I just wanted everybody to leave me alone. So anyway, uh, I went. And I went way far away to a meeting out in Mount Carmel where nobody knew, knew me. And I was hoping that, you know, they would, they would never uh, find out. I had paid a bit of attention to them in their blue book. Um, <laughs> but I went. And I, you know, I guess I stood out a little bit because at that time then, now I'm really, you know, well, I'm getting more and more pregnant. So I'm getting shown more and more and more. And, um, uh, and somebody must have said, oh, there was a woman in Mount Carmel. You know, talk about breaking anonymity. 
Oh, there's a woman around Thermo, and I don't know her name, but she's got sex cabin. She's pregnant with her seven. Well, you know, duh, let's see, who could that be, you know? <laughs> so, of course, but eventually they knew I was in, and, uh, and that was fine, and that was good. And so I got in, and I, and, and things have, and things have never been the same. I mean, that's all I know, is that things have never been the same. I don't really have a 12-step workshop, to tell you the truth. But, I, but I'll tell you what I have. I've got the experience of my life, and that's all that I have to share with you. I haven't got any advice for you. I haven't got any cute little phrases. All I can tell you is how these 12 steps have changed my life. Um, I, think I, I think I should start out by telling you, after I was in the program for about two and a half years, my husband was killed in a helicopter crash. And, um, and I just want to say that now because, um, because that's what happened. And, you know, and he tried, God love him, he tried AA. Uh, and he would go to meetings and he would come back. And he even, he even went, uh, he even got his own blue book. <laughs> and he went to this friend of mine, who I love. She's a big drinker, still drinks today. Um, she's an outrageous woman, and, and I love her to death. And sometimes I go years without being with her. But on New Year's Eve, she'll call me drunk almost every year, and she leaves a message on my machine. I've known her since I've been in the seventh grade, and she'll go, Kathy, I mean, she's just drunk. I love you. I love you more than anybody in the world. It just touches my heart. It really does. So he goes he goes to her house. She doesn't even, she can't stand him. She goes to his house, but then he 12 steps her. It was so funny. <laughs> It was so funny. I think he scared her out of bed for the rest of her life. But at any rate, but you know, for whatever reason, I don't know, he tried it, and then he just, oh, he just thought he would come home and he'd say, I can't believe that we're supposed to be happy. I can't believe that we're supposed to be happy in this world. I think this world is supposed to be suffering and, and that you earn your way into heaven. I can't believe the happiness they're trying to tell me about. And I... Oh boy, I really, you know, talk about, and really that gets me into step one, talk about having to recognize that I'm powerless. You know, I knew that there was no way I could take that thinking of his and change it for him. I couldn't scrub it. I wanted to, I wanted to take a brush and just scrub all that crazy old thinking away for him, but I couldn't. And so eventually he dropped out, and eventually he stopped everything, and eventually on Saturday... He went off to fly, and he never came home. And um, and that's and that's and that's what happened. And um, and then I had these seven kids, and the oldest at the time of his death was 14, and the youngest one was two. And the only thing that I can tell you, that along with Al-Anon and my very strong belief in a loving and compassionate and faithful God that got me through was the fact that I also believe that I really was so stunned by his death it took me three or four years before I realized what had really happened almost you know living one day at a time was the only way I believe that that I that I did that um, and that was really only because of you because you reminded me that I only needed to make it until I could put those kids to bed but actually, a lot of it, I'm so, you know, death sometimes stuns me. It took me by such surprise. Um, it took me by such surprise that I, it just took me a long time for it to actually sink in that he was gone. And the other thing, um, when he died, um, and when the police 
were at my, actually they followed me up the driveway where I had all the kids in the car. And when they told me what had happened, his mother, who was very ill herself, my father-in-law had already died, but my mother-in-law, she came up the driveway and she saw the police. Now this was not the first time my husband had crashed. She saw the police, I think she thought, oh my God, here we go again. And when they informed her and I walked over to hold her, I'll never forget the image of her standing there, this frail little woman with this cane draped on her arm as she held her arms out to me. And as I hugged her, she said to me, thank God he's out of his pain. Now that was her oldest and I believe favorite son. And I'll never ever forget those words. And to this day, I have to remember that. That for whatever reason, my husband is no longer in that awful pain that he lived with, that emotional nightmare. Because even when he would white knuckle it and stayed off of alcohol and stayed away from the drugs, and he he would have to go out in the woods and sit alone. And I don't know actually if he drank out in the woods or what, but it was such a struggle for him on his own. And that I guess to me is when I, you know, I forgot my own, I love our new book, um, and the thing that I love about it the most, one of the things that I love about it is, is that preamble. The Al-Anon family groups are a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problems. We believe alcoholism is a family disease and that changed attitudes can aid recovery. And that first paragraph of this, of this book, our um, book, Al-Anon and How It Works, really for me has changed my life. Because for me, I was always afraid. You know, we admit, step one says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives were unmanageable. I was always so reluctant and afraid to admit that I was powerless, that I could not fix this thing. I can remember one time my mother-in-law, in a fit of frustration, said to me, why don't you do something about him? And I thought, oh, shoot. I, I, you know, I felt like she knew that at the one job I had been given in life, I had failed. And I couldn't do anything. I just didn't know what more to do for him. I just didn't know what more to do. I was powerless, but I simply couldn't admit it. It was such a fear for me. You know, and he would get into fights. When my husband drank, he would get into fights. And it was almost never that he would fight. He would always get beaten up. He would always say something um, derogatory about somebody's wife or something. And then somebody would just beat him up. And I used to think that was my responsibility, to keep him out of fights. And I used to think it was my fault that I couldn't see this coming and prevent it. And I felt terrible about that. And so for, I, I was so reluctant to admit that I was powerless. Because really, I came from a place where I believed that if you loved someone enough, if you were patient and kind, you could, you could just love them to death. That if you were just there, and if you were willing to take it, that they would change. And when it didn't happen, I thought it was because of me. I thought it was because of me. And it was difficult for me to, to, to admit that I was powerless. But what a relief. You know, I was in a meeting maybe five or six years ago, maybe even longer. And it was a de detox. And it was, it's a beginner's meeting that we run. My home group runs for this detox center in downtown Cincinnati. And this one woman was talking about violence. 
And she was talking about um, being beaten up. And, uh, and it struck me that I had been hit. It, and it was like I had forgotten all about that. And that I had been kicked. And that I had been shoved. And I had forgotten that. And when that woman in this detox center was talking about it, it's like this veil was lifted from my memory. And I remembered that that had happened to me. Not a lot. Not a lot. But enough. Enough so that it scared me. Enough so that it scared me. And to admit that, for me to admit that, how unmanageable my life had become, was really difficult. Because I come out of a place where, you know, you get things done. If something's broken by God, we're going to fix it. People used to call me, these neighboring people used to call me because they were always missing their cats. And I knew the cats were, you know, well, I knew, I knew the cats were long gone because my husband would hit a hunt. I mean, he would sit out on that front hill overlooking the river in the hills of Kentucky with an infrared thing scope on these rifles that he used to have. And um, I don't know what he was shooting, but I know every once in a while a little old tabby would get in the way. I mean, I knew that. It got to be to the point where I was afraid to answer the phone. That's how unmanageable my life had become. Because I didn't know who was going to be on the other end. And I knew it was going to be somebody that would think it was my responsibility to fix these things. This book here, um, this Alan on How It Works book, says, We have been profoundly affected by the disease of alcohol. Alcoholism. <clears throat> I know that I am powerless over that fact. The fact of the matter is, my life has been profoundly affected by the disease of alcoholism, and I cannot change that. All I can do is recover from that. That's all that I know that I can do. But for me, it has to start with the fact that I am absolutely powerless over this disease, and that my life had come, become unmanageable. I was dancing so fast to try to keep ahead of you so you would never know what I was living with. So you would never know what I was accepting as normal. Because what would you think of me? I think you would say, I was afraid you would say what my mother-in-law said. Why can't you fix this? You're so smart. Why can't you fix this? When I got to my very first Al-Anon meeting, it was a beginner's meeting, this kindly woman by the name of Ruth taught me what I guess is basic in all beginner's meetings, the three C's, that I didn't cause it, I couldn't control it, and I couldn't cure it. And I never knew that. I never thought I'd cause my husband's drinking, but I always thought I should be able to cure it and control it. If I were loving enough and did the right things, that I should be able to fix it. And I'm not so far away. You know, that, that thought has never been entirely removed either. Did you ever see the movie Leaving Las Vegas? Oh, yeah. Well, I go to see Leaving Las Vegas last year, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking... <laughs> I bet I could have gotten Nicholas Cage sober. <laughs> really? I was driving home and I thought, oh, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? It's an old habit. It's an old way of thinking. <laughs> this is what you taught me about powerlessness. You taught me that failure is the beginning of wisdom. You taught me with step one that failure is the beginning of wisdom. And nothing really started to change for me until I accepted that fact.
that what I was trying to do, I couldn't do. And what a relief that was for me. Because you told me the main job that had been plaguing me for the last 12 and a half years was not my job. I was relieved the very first meeting that I went to. I had a tremendous sense of relief when I walked out of that very first beginner's meeting because that's what you told me. You also, in my first meeting, gave me a wonderful slogan, let go and let God. You are powerless. Let go and let God. I clung to that slogan as though it were my, my life's breath. Let go and let God. I loved it. I loved the way it sounded. I loved the rhythm of it. Let go and let God. I would go home from these meetings and I would think, let go and let God. I don't have to do this. This isn't my job. I don't have to do this. And you know what I found? That all of a sudden I had all this time on my hands to do things that I really wanted to do, to do things that I enjoyed, to discover what it was that I did enjoy. I had forgotten. I had forgotten what I liked to do. To this day, people say, well, what do you like to do? And I, I had to stop and think for a minute because I gave it up so long ago and for so many years. Let go and let God. I used to think that my job was to keep my husband's thinking correct. I was the keeper of truth and justice in that relationship. And you told me I could simply go home and say to him, you could be right. You could be right. I don't know. And so I would go home and he would start something and I would simply say to, my, say to him, you could be right. And it made a huge difference in the way that I was living because I came to recognize that I was powerless over somebody else's thinking. I was powerless over somebody else's journey in their life. You know, what I think is <clears throat> that God brings me very gently, and it usually takes me a long time, that God brings me to a place of powerlessness. When I got in the program, <clears throat> my husband um, had started this construction job. Now, this is a guy who's a jet pilot. I mean, he flew Phantom Jets for the Marine Corps. And he also was a dentist and a very, very good one. And he also was a real estate agent. So he was a very, very highly talented man. And now he's digging ditches. And, you know, digging ditches is noble work. But I would see him leave the house in jeans with a shovel over his shoulder. And off he would go to dig ditches. And I believe that experience, which I, which I really found to be so painful, and yet it is through that painful experience that God really brought me to a place of powerlessness. I would call my sponsor and she would say, that's the best that he can do today. That is the best that he can do today. And I would be reminded that his path was not mine to design. His path was not mine to decide. He was doing the best that he could for the day. God brought me to that place. And even with these crazy little helicopters he used to fly, I used to resent that to no end because he would go off and fly these things. And there were, it was a handmade thing. You know, it was, he made it at home. It was just a little rotor and a motor and Mr. Reckless Dauntless. You know, he'd go off in a lawn chair with the blades attached to it. And <laughs> really? And it would go off flying. And that was supposed to be all right, you know. And he didn't really have a job. And we had all these kids. He used to burn me to no end. My sponsor would say, you're powerless. You're powerless. If that's what brings him happiness, 
allowing some happiness. Let it go. Let it go. You are powerless over that. And so that experience brought me to a piece, to a place of powerlessness. His isolation. You know, there'd be all these people. Now are all these people, and a lot of them are all in AA down at the pool. You think, oh, you wouldn't go near it. Isolated. A lot of his friends, you know, of our friends, were successful. You know, went on, did a lot of things. He's digging a hole in the ground. You never saw him anymore. The isolation, the isolation was incredible. I was powerless over his isolation, but you taught me I could do something differently. I could do something differently. And so I began to make the connections on my own. I began to meet and reestablish friendships on my own. I'm powerless over somebody else's decisions to isolate or not to isolate. And that's what you taught me in that, in that first step. But I really believe that God brought me to that place. God continues to bring me to places of powerlessness. My son Mark, after Rick died, he was 14 years old, and he really, oh boy, went wild. I mean, he had been drinking and using drugs, I think, before then. But when my husband died, he went full, I mean, he went full scale. I was powerless over my son's alcoholism. I was powerless over it. God brought me, however, to a point where I really recognized that. One day he took all the little kids and the cousins and trapped them up in the barn, up on the loft, and took away the ladder and told them that he was going to set the barn on fire. And I can remember that I was up at the, where I lived, up at the, one of the houses, main houses, and I heard this whimpering, whimpering of little kids, fearful kids, just the most horrible thing I ever heard. And when I got down there and realized what he had done, he thought, of course, it was terribly funny. It brought me to a place where I recognized how sick my son was. And I was powerless over his disease. I had a sick kid on my hand. And eventually, of course, this child, um, you know, eventually things just got worse and worse and worse. And I don't think powerlessness for me means that I, that I sit back and do nothing. But it means that I begin to recognize that this disease, in some respects, has a life of its own. And my child was sick, and there wasn't much I could do about the disease. I took action to protect myself and to protect my other children. But I was really powerless over this kid's disease. But God continued through many experiences to bring me to that realization. Eventually, my son, um, Oh, through stealing, you know, he's 14, he's stealing automobiles that aren't his and driving off and stealing prescription drugs and selling them at the mall. And it just really got nuts. And eventually he got uh, taken out of the home and placed in, um, you know, a hospital and he ran away from that. And then they'd pick him up and they threw him in uh, another place. And then he punched a kid and ran away from that. He just really had a hard time getting happy. And, you know, one of the sisters, one of his aunts, one of Rick's sisters, brought him a big book and he had it in his room, and I thought, well, that's great. That's great. <laughs> uh, this will, you know, this may, this might fix it, you know. And so I was in his room one time playing, and I picked up the book, you know, just to look at it, just to read it. Here, he'd carved the whole inside of the book out. And in it were a set of keys to a car he didn't own. Powerless over that kid. Powerless over that kid. I stopped at the conservatory for him. He wanted a plant for his room when they put him away in yet another hospital. Uh, they told me later he'd just taken the whole plant out, loaded the bottom of the pot with marijuana, and stuck the plant back in. How inventive. How wonderful. I'm, but <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, 
I'm powerless. This book says to us, our life is unmanageable whenever we lose our perspective about what is and what is not our responsibility. And that, for me, is the importance of the first step. What is and what is not our responsibility. You want me to break now? Let's break now for about, what, 15 minutes? Okay. Yeah, let's do that, and then I'll pick up the rest. When I was, when I finally really sat down to try to organize this a little bit, um, and I would think, well, now this is this was a really powerful experience. This really was a first step thing, and then I'd put it in the first step pile, and then I'd think, that isn't a first step thing at all. That's that's really a seventh step thing. So then I'd move it in the seventh step pile, and then I'd think, they're really in the seventh step thing. That's really a twelve step thing, and then I'd move it in the twelve. You should see my dining room table. <laughs> And I just said, Ellen, I don't even really know if these experiences are fitting the right step. But at one point, somewhere in the last couple of weeks, I thought they did. Um, so pretend like they do if they don't, just like my mother would say. <clears throat> I guess for me, when I think about step one, you know, that idea of powerlessness, oh, the relief that step one brings me, that powerlessness, and, and to recognize how unmanageable my life had become. It was, and again, I really believe God has always taught me lessons gently. It has never been harsh and brutal, really. It has always been cushioned in love and by and surrounded by fellowship. Um, <clears throat> my son Mark, for example, when he, between the ages of 14 and 16, went through this downward spiral, which took him from you know school finally into juvenile detention 2020 uh, in Cincinnati it is because you continually told me you know however you said it oh he's out writing his story he's out you know you are powerless over this child it is only because of that that I was able to let go of that child and stay out of his way of natural consequences I'm going to jump ahead I have personally have a problem when I hear people say, well, just throw that kid out. I don't know how it is in Texas, but in Ohio, you can't throw your kids out. You can't just throw kids out. There's no, like, number that you dial and say, I don't want this 12-year-old, you know, this 12-year-old getting on my nerves, take my 12-year-old. You can't throw your kids out, not in Ohio. And so what you have taught me is through these steps, how to parent in a sane way. And one of those things for me has always been the promise in step one, to recognize that I am powerless, that I don't have to control this, and I can't control the effects of this disease on this child. But if I simply allow consequences to occur, my child, if I stay out of the way, my child will get where my child needs to be no matter where that may be that my child needs to be. So I'm going into 2020 now, which is this juvenile. My son is turning 16. His 16th birthday is in juvenile detention. And what I discovered was that I was so grateful that he was safe. I was so grateful that he was not missing because he would run. Whenever he would run away from one of these places, they would put him. We wouldn't know where he would be for weeks at a time. When I'm missing a child, 
and there are a couple that I have been that have run for a while. For me, I don't care if I'm the queen of the steps. It's scary. It's scary. My sponsor reminds me that recovery is a double-edged sword. I once again am allowed to feel my feelings. And when I'm missing a child, it's frightening. Now I can run through my routine, which is to get down on my knees, to turn my child over, to remember that God is the general and that I am a foot soldier. I have a routine. The fact of the matter is, I do not like it when I'm missing kids. So this kid now, I know where he is. And you constantly remind me that God, that bars do not keep God out. That bars do not keep God out. That the power of God is greater than this disease. And that recovery is stronger than the sickness. And if I will just continue to admit my powerlessness over this child, things will go the way they're going to go. My son today, um, he got tired of that kind of life, actually, and he started going to AA, and he started to do things differently. Today, he is at Ohio State University, ready to graduate in March. He does not believe that he is an alcoholic today. He told me not so long ago that he believes he was brainwashed. And my response to him is simply, you could be right. I'm powerless over that. My sixth child, little Michael, some of you know I've talked about for the last eight years, little Michael has gone here, has gone there, he's in trouble, he's missing, he's being almost thrown out of school, he's trouble, trouble, trouble. He goes to the high school, he chose to go to the high school where I teach. Not all my kids have gone where I teach, this one decided to. And um, so he's right there all the time, and it's and I don't like it, actually. thought it would be a good idea. It's a bad idea. Because he's at my classroom door. My students will say, your son's here. I say, Michael, you can't keep coming here. I'm trying to teach. Can you give me a note to get into class? Please, 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 please. Now I know what my Alamon says. Don't you dare write this note. But this is my little boy. <laughs> I want to get the trouble. So I write him this note. Please admit Michael to class. Sign my name. It's getting crazy. Football. <clears throat> he goes to football. I know football doesn't cure alcoholism. I know that. But I'm thinking, my thinking is when he was a freshman this year, when he was a sophomore, if you can keep these kids in organized sports and give them something to do, it helps. It keeps them off the street. Because to the kids that he runs with, are all they all use. They drink, they smoke dope, they hang out at the top of my street at Perkins, which is open 24 hours a day. So I encourage this kid to play football. Not because I think it's going to cure him of alcoholism, but because I believe what Gracie read, that we encourage and understand the alcoholics in our life. And so as a parent, I try to, as any normal parent would do, encourage him to do other things. The football works for a while. Works for a while. Keeps him off the streets. Keeps him busy. Keeps him exhausted. It does not keep him so busy that he doesn't have time, of course, to pierce his little nipple with a nipple brain. And all the football players are aghast, you know, that they got somebody on their team with a nipple ring. And it doesn't, you know, he's got his hair dyed gold now. And he has a dreadlock. And before he found out that you could buy this wax called Dread It, he would use jam. <laughs> and you just, you know, so the one nice thing is that when you got all these kids down here in their football uniforms, and they pretty much, you know, I mean, they pretty much look the same. Kind of they do, kind of they do. Um, but when they take their helmets off, 
I can spot him because he's the only kid with this gold, these gold dreadlocks coming out, and, and that was a plus. But you know, <laughs> God brings me to a place with this child of powerlessness, gently and slowly. For eight years, I have watched this child, and I, and I think I said to Albert, hoping that it's just teenage angst, but knowing in my heart of hearts, this is a sick kid. This is a sick kid. This isn't just teenage behavior. I hope that it, I wish that it were, but I, I know in my heart of hearts, it's not. And God brings me to that realization slowly and carefully. This child, um, his, his, his drinking uh, and outrageous behavior got him into the courts. The courts suggested that he be tested, um, and he was tested, and they put him in a Jewish hospital in this teenage rehab thing. And um, I don't know. Before he went in, I thought to myself, I don't think this is going to work only because they keep sending him home. And he comes home and he runs off to his friends at the top of the street and they all smoke dope and, you know, and blah, 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 and drink on the weekend. You know, I just thought, this isn't going to work. And I don't want to put myself in a situation, and I never want to put myself in a situation where I'm setting a kid up, uh, where, I, where I'm, how can I explain this, where, I'm, where my hopes ride on a kid's recovery. I, I just think that's a bad business for me. Can I go through this rehab program, which is going to involve me, you know, going to parent meetings, blah, blah, blah. Can I go through all that from March until July of last year? And if at the end he walks out of there in July and continues to drink, can I do that and not have any expectations attached to it? And only when I knew that I could do it and it would be okay and that I, and that I really could almost divorce myself from the outcome, um, did I decide to go ahead and do what they told me to do and I put him in Jewish hospital and uh, and and there it was and one and and we went and I went to all these parent meetings of course and uh, one of the parent meetings involved that we were all asked to go to something called an Al-Anon meeting and it was over on the west side of town and I'm an east side town person and I'm over the west side of town and they they were late starting the meeting and now I'm mad you know now I'm mad because what the heck? I mean, we started our meetings on time on the east side, now on the west side, and they're, they're late. And not only are they late, but they're not reading the right opening. I mean, I don't know where the opening they got, and then they got all the promise, the, the AA promises, and I thought, where, what kind of meeting is this? And now I'm mad. So then I decide that what I'm going to do to punish them is not to talk. <laughs> That's all getting back. I won't share. Oh, oh. Well, that destroy the meeting. I mean, what an ego, you know? So I'm sitting there, and I'm mad, and I'm there all doing it wrong. And I thought they were spending much too much time concentrating on the alcoholics in their life and not enough time talking about themselves. Blah, blah, blah. So finally this man said exactly what I needed to hear. He talked about being a lifeguard. And he said, and, and, and this makes sense to me because I worked my way through school being a lifeguard. And he said, um, when I was trained to be a lifeguard, we were always taught never to get into the deep, never to go directly into water where there is a struggling, drowning person. Don't do that. Hand them a pole, throw them a life buoy, you know, give them a long towel, anything, 
but don't get close to them because if you do and they're struggling, they're going to wrap themselves around your head, which is the highest point for them, and they are going to they are going to get you into a scissors lock and you are going to drown and go under with them. And that for me, and that's exactly what I needed to hear that night, because that for me is what Al-Anon has done. It has taught me how to love a struggling, drowning person without going under with them. It has taught me how to do that through these steps and through the principles that we, that we, that we live how to love a drowning, struggling person without going under with them. And that's exactly what I needed to hear. And there are some days when the safest thing for me is not even to show up at the pool. Some days I just can't even go to the pool that day. I have to stay home and sit in my backyard. That's what, see, that's what for me is not only my powerless, but I'm powerless over the effects of this disease too. I have been profoundly affected by alcoholism, and I have to be able to admit that. Otherwise, otherwise, my life will always, always be unmanageable. So here, this little kid is this darling little kid, and I'll tell you, I like this kid. Now, the oldest one, God, I could have sent him to Attica and been happy about it, you know. <laughs> but this number six, he's just a sweetheart of a little kid with his little dreadlocks. And on, on, on Valentine's Day, I don't even hear from the oldest one, you know. But the little one, he, wrote, he leaves a little silk rose on my pillow, and he writes a note that says, Mom, I love you so much. And the reason, the reason this rose is not real, the reason it's silk is so it will last forever, just like my love for you. Aww. Now, really, I read that and I thought, this kid's going to make a fine alcoholic. <laughs> I take my kids to Cape Cod every summer. We've been, I've been going to Cape Cod since the 50s when my parents started taking us up there. And, and it's just a place that I love. For me, it is peace and serenity. I love New England. I love the ocean. We go to the same place. Sometimes my kids will say, can't we have somewhere else? And I go, find <laughs> <laughs> your own place when you're old enough. Um, this summer, we're all ready to go off to Cape Cod. And I, and I have to admit, I'm, ready, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about taking this little Michael and getting him away from this horrible horrible situation he is just spiraling down into. The rehab has not only not helped his uh, drinking and, and drugs, it's increased it. Sometimes that happens. So he's spiraling into this. We leave at quarter after five in the morning. We always do, because it's a long drive. We make it all the way up to Providence, Rhode Island, and my brother in one driving. It used to take me a long time. Now I let my girls drive, and I don't know, we end up in Providence in 14 hours. I don't know. I think when I go to sleep in the back of the car, we become airborne. <laughs> I don't know. I just go to sleep, don't ask any questions. But I always tell them if you get a ticket, you pay for it. So, um, we have to leave a quarter after five because two of my girls, one lives in Chicago, one's in school in St. Louis, they're going to fly into Columbus, Ohio on these cheap Southwest things. And, and I got this kid at Ohio State that he's going to pick them up. So the three of them are waiting for the Cincinnati contingent pick them up at 8 o'clock. It's all very, you know, organized. Well, it's quarter five and I've got no Michael. <clears throat> it's quarter five in the morning and I have no Michael. And um, 
and I wake up and I and I know he's not there because I've been up at three because the parent the kid another parent called and said um, I dropped them off there at one o'clock are they still there and of course they're not there he calls me back at three are they there and I said they're not here now I am able to sleep but I have to say I have to go through this I have got to one more time remind myself of my powerlessness and God brings me to this realization gently but certainly cannot control this disease in my kids. All the alateen, all the slogans, all the people in my life who are in recovery does not necessarily mean that my kids are not going to be affected by this disease. It's quarter or five in the morning. We have to leave in 30 minutes. I have no child. And I don't know what I'm going to do because I can't leave this 15-year-old home. So I let go. I let go. I say, this is crazy. Just fix yourself some coffee. Start, you know, packing up. I started doing it 10 after 5. He and his buddy up the driveway, drunk as skunks. You could smell them as soon as I opened the door. There they are. And what we did is I called the father who had been calling me throughout the night and said, I've got him. And uh, somebody drove him home. And mine, we literally had to pick up and drag him in the front seat of the car. By now he only has his underwear on. We drag him and put him in the front seat of the car, throw a blanket over him, throw his stuff in the back, and he came to probably by the time we got to Connecticut. And you know, there's a piece of me that um, is very annoyed by that, that this family, that this is, you know, about the situation. But there's also a bigger part of me that reminds me that this is a family disease. This is a family disease. And sometimes the best I can do is just to put one foot in front of another and take it one day at a time and to really believe that, that God is in charge, that God is in charge. And so that's, you know, that's what we did. And, uh, of course, you made light of it, and it didn't really mean anything, and it was my last night in town, and when I came home I'd start football. Always a million excuses. He came back and he did play football. And he made it through the season. And then he started wrestling, which is his real, real love. And in December of last year, I'm watching this child wrestle. And, and um, there's the hair, you know. Now it's worse than ever. Now it's worse than ever. And when I came in to watch his tournament in December, the coach, who, you know, is also a man that I, with whom I teach, he came up to me and he said, Kathy, I don't mean to be a hard guy about this, but the referee will not let him wrestle with that hair.